The early church had a a tradition that many of you know about. When a believer met another believer on Easter morning, uh, the first would say, He is risen, and then the other would respond by saying, He is risen indeed. Should we try that? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed. That's why we're here today, over 2,000 years later. And I can attest to the resurrection has made all the difference in my life, and Jesus Christ has changed my life radically. It's because of the resurrection. Bridge kids, thank you so much for worshiping with us, and you are dismissed. And the rest of us are in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 37 this morning. Acts chapter 4. Encourage you to find that in your scriptures. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal says this. See if you're tracking. By all observable metrics, zombies are totally hot right now. Another article claims that zombies have become outrageously, staggeringly, mind-blowingly popular. Not only do they top bestseller lists in video games and the iPad, the undead dominate television too with nearly 16 million viewers of The Walking Dead, AMC's hit TV series, and uh, nearly, uh, which nearly outperformed the 2014 Olympics, by the way. Then uh, some of you know uh, the movie uh, World War Z, a movie about the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse starring Brad Pitt, has grossed over $540 million. So what's the big deal about the zombie craze? One expert on zombie lore, Dr. John Ulrich, professor of English at Mansfield University, says this, quote, As its most elemental level, of course, the zombie represents our fear of death. Stephen March, a cultural critic who writes for Esquire magazine, which is obviously a cultural source, he agrees, but he says, as an atheist, March offers some honest thoughts about zombies and our death fears. In his article titled, Why Zombies Are Everywhere Now, March writes these words. After seeing dozens of zombie movies, I am convinced that the reason zombies are so powerful is that they capture an atheistic fear of the dead. I just don't, I don't just mean fear of dead bodies, though that fear is there, too. Materialistic atheism does not provide a very comforting way to deal with the dead. Christians and others have prayer and visions of an afterlife. Atheists like myself, he writes, have rotting corpses and oblivion and zombie movies. Is that all there is? What if that's all you got? Rotting corpses, oblivion, and zombie movies. And the good news is that's not all that we have. Because 2,000 years ago, there was a resurrection from the dead, and his name was Jesus. He was unfairly condemned to death. He was beaten, ridiculed, skewered, laughed at, and nailed to a cross. He was crucified, 
He died and he was buried. On the third day, a Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. And Jesus Christ, God's Son, is alive. And that's really good news. And so many people just leave it right there. They just, yeah, that's a nice story. Yeah, I know about Jesus. I know he died on the cross, but that's all in the past. And the good news is he's alive right now. We learn about in Acts chapter 1 that he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The death of Jesus and his resurrection demonstrated his power over sin, over death, and over Satan. In our study in the book of Acts, and I've got to get positioned so I can see somewhere here in the light, because this light has changed pretty drastically. So, uh, in our study in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 takes place 40 days after the resurrection. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And we saw that in Acts chapter 1. Jesus told his followers to go back to Jerusalem to pray and to wait, and that's exactly what they did. In Acts chapter 2, 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus sent the promised Holy Spirit, that which the Father had promised to give to his disciples, to empower them to serve him, to empower them to do exactly what Jesus told them in Acts 1. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, they received that power, and they received the Holy Spirit. Today we're in Acts chapter 4. And let me just add one more thing in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came, the apostle Peter stood up in their midst and he preached his very first sermon. And the result was 3,000 people placed their faith in Christ. A pretty dramatic start to the first church. So Acts chapter 4. And we're going to begin today with the practice of prayer. Practice of prayer. Verses 23 through 31. This is a practice of prayer in the early church. Verse 23, the report on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders said to them. Well, okay, what report? Well, thank you for asking. Let me tell you because you may have not been here when we talked about this report. Here's what happened in Acts chapter 3. If you remember, Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. It was about 3 in the afternoon. It was shortly after the church got its start. A few days, a few weeks perhaps. They go, up to pray. they go up to the temple. The temple area is a very large area. It holds hundreds, even thousands of people. It's out in the open with a wall all around it. Peter and John go up and they meet a man who has been lame since birth. And he has been placed in his strategic location to beg. And so he, he asks Peter and John when they approach for money. Because that's what he's been doing all of his life. That's what he's trained to do. And he's, he knows he's in a strategic people be, place because God's people are supposed to be generous. Peter and John have no money, but they offer what they have. And they heal this man in the name of Jesus Christ because that's the offer they have. They have the ability, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
to restore this man's uh, legs. And he jumps up and he begins to praise God. And this creates quite a commotion, you remember, at the temple. This really is a big stir. A lot of people know this man. He's been there for 40 years, sort of as a figure at the temple. And his, he has just been healed. And so that gets the attention of the leaders, the religious leaders, uh, the high priests, and the temple guard come, and they speak to him. Uh, they speak to um, Peter and John, and uh, they arrest Peter and John, throw him in jail overnight. And then the next day, they bring Peter and John out, and they uh, conclude that Peter and John should never speak or preach in the name of Jesus again. So there ends the church. The church faces this big obstacle. Peter and John say, whoa, wait a minute. Um, Should we obey God or should we obey man? And they choose to obey God, which which brings us to Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 30. And this is the prayer. This is how the church responds to, to this unbelievable conflict. You can't speak in the name of Jesus again, okay? Here's how they respond. Let's look at verses 24 through 30. Please follow in your text. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So here's a quote from Psalm uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We might as well see the result in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's the prayer. Prayer, first of all, let's just break it down a little bit. First of all, it focused on uh, who God is. It focused on who God is. It begins with sovereign Lord. And um, you know, what would you do if uh, you were told and if our church was told Um, you can't preach again in the name of Jesus. Never again will you speak about Jesus. What do you do in conflict? Uh, What did the early church do? What would would we do? We, we, We would, what, complain, worry, wring our hands, throw our hands up in the air. Somebody would say, I knew we should have never done this. This was impossible from the beginning. We can't win. And the church decided to pray, and it didn't take them long to pray. They begin with Sovereign Lord. 
because he is the final he is the final authority. He is in charge of the universe, not the Sanhedrin. Second of all, um, this prayer was focused on what God has done, what God has done already. Verse 24, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. One of the things you learn about this prayer, and you'll see it in a lot of other prayers, is to remind God about who he is and what he's already done. It also assumes you know some truth. You know something about scripture, you know something about who God is, and you know enough about what he's done. Are you asking for something that's consistent with who he is and what he's done, what his will is? What has God done? He, he's the creator of all things. He's the master designer. He's, he designed all the intricacies of the created order. He made the rules. He's the one who is the author of life and death. He is the righteous one. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And so here again, they're going to go back and they're going to quote scripture. Now, here's the interesting thing. They don't have a Bible. They're, they're not in their prayer meeting all holding a Bible. Nobody's holding a Bible. They have scripture memorized. There might be a few Old Testament um, scrolls around, probably not many. But they know the scripture, and they quote the scripture and remind God. And why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Please notice these groups. There are nations, there are peoples, there are kings, there are rulers, and then there's the anointed one. Verse 27. Indeed, Herod. Herod was a tetrarch of Israel. He was really called a king. He was kind of a puppet king. He wasn't, didn't really have much authority. And Jesus had to appear before him on the night uh, he was betrayed. He stood before him in a hearing. And Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, the ruler of Israel at that time under the Roman authority, and Jesus appeared before him. And it was Pontius Pilate who had to make the final announcement about crucifixion. They met together with the Gentiles. Who would that be? That would be other Romans, Roman soldiers that were involved. And the people of Israel. Well, that would include the chief priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin. It would include people who were in the audience who yelled, Crucify, crucify. In this city, the people of Israel, in this city, which is Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, God, I'm just reminding you, God, you anointed him, meaning you picked him, meaning you put your blessing on him, you put your special favor on him. Uh, he was the promised one, the one who would fulfill all of the promises, uh, now and in the future. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Pretty interesting. They're um, identifying with the sovereignty of God 
they recognized that God's hand was in every step. And yet Herod is responsible and Pontius Pilate is responsible and the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers and the others who were involved and the people of Israel who were involved on that day and the leaders of Israel who were involved are responsible and bear that guilt. And yet it was God who was orchestrating all there was about the crucifixion and the resurrection. The death of Jesus was not an accident of history. The death of Jesus was orchestrated by God the Father. Jesus um, stated clearly that he understood that he came to do the Father's will. And um, Jesus was never surprised by the crucifixion. The prayer focus is who God is, what God has already done, and what now God wants to do. Verses 29 through 30. Prayer was focused on what God wants to do. And what is that? What does God want to do? Remember the last thing that Jesus told his disciples? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where are they? In Jerusalem. Then Judea expanding, Samaria further to the ends of the earth. God's plan is for Christ's followers to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. A witness is someone who tells what they know. They tell the truth. They can't tell what they don't know. They can only tell what they do know. What do you know about Jesus? What has he done for you? A witness can only tell those things. Verse 29, now, Lord, here's the prayer. Here's the request. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What are they asking? They want boldness. They want to do what Jesus asked them to do. They want to be witnesses for Jesus Christ and tell people who Jesus is and what he's done. And they just want boldness. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask God for his power. Um, They ask God for miracles, just like the man who was healed, the man who was lame for 40 years. They ask God for miracles like that. They ask in Jesus' name, the one who was alive and the one who's been resurrected from the dead. That's their prayer. That's their request. And then we see that result. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. That was probably kind of an amazing experience. You, you pray and you ask God, and all of a sudden there's some kind of shaking. And it was just God answering and saying, I'm with you. I heard it. My power is available to you. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 31, and they spoke the word of God boldly. God answered just like they asked. They wanted courage. They wanted to speak the word of God boldly, and that's exactly what happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit when they got the words to speak 
while they were in conflict with the chief priests. The Holy God enabled them to speak with courage and to speak with wisdom and, and to respond in a godly way. They were yielded to the Holy Spirit. A couple of observations. First of all, when the believers faced conflict with authorities over the gospel, they resorted to prayer and not complaint. You know, we've kind of already seen that. When they face conflict, it's, it's like a knee-jerk reaction on their part to go to prayer. Not to complain, not to say, pity me, what about me, what about my needs, what about my wants, what about my dreams? They go right to prayer. Um, their prayer focused on the greatness of God, not on their circumstances. They didn't say, God, well, what about me? What about my problems? They saw God being much bigger than their problems. And question for us, do we sometimes see our problems bigger than God? Our problems become our focus, they become our weight, they become our burden, and they are bigger than God. And we don't think we should bother him or that it's going to help. And this has a whole lot to do with what you think about God. How big is God? What does Scripture say? What are you trusting in? Your view may be inadequate. My view is sometimes inadequate. The early church was a great example for us when it comes to prayer. Thirdly, their prayer focused on God's kingdom priorities, not on their safety or protection. God had a plan for the first century church, and I don't think his plan has changed much. It was about advancing his kingdom one life at a time. He asked them to be witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. That was both a a prophecy and it was a command. And I don't think anything has changed about that, that we still have this same responsibility to be witnesses, to represent Jesus Christ. We can say we're ambassadors for Christ. We are to represent him well and speak for him. Tell about who he is and what he's done. What do we know about him? It was about putting God's kingdom first. They understood this. Jesus had taught them, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. They remembered the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom first. Give us this day our daily bread. Our kingdom second. Does God care about our needs? Absolutely. There's plenty of passages in Scripture about God caring for us and supplying our needs. Not only that, He promises to meet our needs. But life isn't all about us. There are priorities that are God's priorities first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The things that we need... God will provide. Fourthly, God answered their prayers with power and favor. And I would just like to ask the question, what can we learn from the early church? Are, are our prayers sometimes too focused on us? I confess mine prayers are often too focused on us. 
I'm, I'm concerned about safety I'm con- for my family. I'm concerned about provision for my family. I'm concerned about physical needs. I'm concerned about how people feel. Those are all important, but they come also after the priorities of God's kingdom being first. Um. Secondly, let's talk about uh, the practice of generosity in the early church, verses 32 through 37. And we see right off a strong sense of unity in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. This is an amazing description of the early church. Uh, This describes a kind of unity, one heart, one mind, in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. They came together. They they got on the same page. They had the same kind of priorities. They wanted Jesus to be first. They wanted Jesus to be Lord. They wanted other people to come into relationship with him. And they wanted to be available, they wanted to be used, and they wanted to work together. This was an answer to a prayer of Jesus in John 17. In John 17, the night before Jesus was betrayed, uh, the night he uh, had the Last Supper, he had a prayer alone to the Father. John 17, verse 11 says, and this is Jesus just talking to his Father in a prayer, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world, referring to his disciples. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus was praying for unity for his followers because there was a possibility for all kinds of chaos to happen after his death. And he's praying that they may be one. And and he he wants God to protect them. By the way, Jesus prays for you. And he cares about your protection. But he prayed for a unity. One heart, one mind. A strong sense of unity. Verse 32, a kind expression of generosity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is a very unique situation, a very unique time period. In submission to the lordship of Christ, God's people shared their possessions with extreme generosity. They were not required to. They were not commanded to. They did this as a voluntary response. Verse 33, a profound demonstration of God's favor. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. A profound demonstration of God's favor. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Here they are, Jerusalem. And the apostles continued. So they're ordered not to speak And they continue to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. God's favor was on the church. So that the church could continue to be witnesses. So the church could continue to do God's will. Verse 34 and 35, a huge impact on poverty. Verse uh, 33, the, the end of the verse says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, verse 34, that there were no needy persons among them. 
From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Again, there was no order to do this. This was a voluntary response. Some who had property, some who had homes, probably more wealthy, sold um, those so that resources could be given to the poor. It says they brought them to the apostles' feet, meaning they brought them to one place. That's how. That's a description of giving to the church. And then th- this was like put into one fund, and then it was distributed as people had need. It wasn't distributed equally. This is not some kind of Christian communism. It was distributed as people had need. It was voluntarily, volunteer, and it was as people had need. And um, many of you know that we have a, a mercy fund here at the bridge. Um, and, and we make, make uh, we let people know about it, and we especially focus on it on Communion Sunday, and uh, just as an opportunity that above and beyond regular giving, you can support our Mercy Fund, and it's it's a fund that we use to help uh, people in need. Sometimes people at the bridge, sometimes people outside of the bridge, whatever that need can be. If we can do it, we um, we use that to help. And um, if you really want to know, we stay pretty busy with it. A profound demonstration of God's favor. A huge impact on poverty. Verses 36 and 37, we come to our last uh, section. A new leader is introduced. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So remember, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and this is Luke's way of introducing us to a very important person in the story of the church. His name is Joseph. We're going to know him by Barnabas. He's going to be mentioned 24 times. He's going to move in and become a significant player. He's going to eventually meet the Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul, and he's going to be the one who disciples the Apostle Paul. But this is Luke's way of introducing him. What we learn about Joseph, he's a, he's a Levite, meaning he's from the tribe of Levi, and they were the support team for the priests at the temple. But th- this uh, Levite is from Cyprus. He's not an Israeli Jew. They would have called him in the first and then. First century, a Hellenistic Jew, and uh, he's from outside of Israel. He's a Jewish man who's from the island of Cyprus. We can assume he comes from a fairly wealthy family that has property, and he's also a relative of John Mark. We know that. John Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's a relative, and apparently John Mark's family had some wealth as well, and maybe the home where the upper room was where... Jesus met with his disciples. So we're introduced to Joseph, and we will see much more of this man. Who the, he's not known as Barnabas yet, but because of his character, that the apostles will give him this name as son of encouragement. So some observations. Here we go. 
First observation, God still wants unity in his church today. It's very true. He still wants unity in his church today. John 17, Jesus prayed for us. Did you, did you know that in John 17? Same prayer. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the original disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That applies to us because we have come to know Jesus Christ through their message. It's been handed down generation to generation that all of them may be one. One heart, one mind. Jesus prayed for that. This is his, the desire of his heart. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There was something so powerful about the early church when they had one heart and one mind. It was so attractive to people outside of the church. They wanted to know what was going on. They wanted to know what was at the heart of this. And unity in the body of Christ, when people are humble and they come together under the lordship of Christ, is an extremely powerful witness. It's more than just preaching. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. The Apostle Paul says to the church, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The church, the body of Christ, is so important. Um, God wants us to make every effort to preserve this kind of unity. It, re- it requires a commitment. It's about love. It, it's, it's more than just Sitting and soaking, it's about connectedness, it's about working together and serving together, being humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another. This is a great passage for families. God's design for our family is that we be humble and preserve the unity and be kind and patient. Second observation, God still wants his people to be generous Probably a no-brainer for you, but here's a couple of passages. Proverbs chapter 21. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. And I would suggest there are probably ten passages in the book of Proverbs that speak about our attitude toward those who are under-resourced. And I would suggest this passage is reminding us that we ought not expect God to answer our prayer if We don't remember needs of the poor or the under-resourced. Then Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, another passage we don't look at very often. Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I think that's about serving. It's about giving. It's about pouring our lives out for Christ. Verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Then the whole context there, doing good, refers to sharing, giving our resources, as well as serving. It's more than just doing good things. It includes giving good money and resources, doing good. And then there's an order here, especially to the family of believers. Priority goes to your church, meeting the needs of your church, then meet people outside of your church. Thirdly, third observation, 
God still gives abundant favor on those who share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. He wants us uh, to share, we're, we're witnesses, who he is and what he's done. And he still gives favor to his church, those who share the good news about the resurrection. And let's look at John 15, 4, verses 4 and 5. John 15, 4 and 5 is a reminder. And Jesus taught us this. This is for his followers. He says, remain in me and I will also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Uh, It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he reminds us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so one of the things that Jesus is teaching his followers here is that we must be in a close relationship with Jesus. We must be in an intimate relationship, relying on him, connected to him. He's the uh, vine. He's the one who gives life. He nourishes. We're the branches. We're the extension. And he nourishes us. And as we are connected, we'll have success in what we do. And we have kingdom priorities first about what we should do. Be witness. Tell people who Jesus is and what he has done. And Jesus said, you'll bear much fruit. And the disciples got that. Last of all, the good news is still good, isn't it? The good news is still good. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to Margaret at Lazarus' tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The good news is still true. You know, if we were to read through the Bible, we could, we could uh, summarize the teaching of what God's perspective on this subject is. Uh, first of all, the Bible says we're all sinners, every one of us. And uh, secondly, the Bible says there are consequences for our sin. Wages of sin is death. That's not just physical death, but it's a spiritual death. The third thing is, is that God made a provision for us and he sent his son Jesus. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid for the penalty of our sin. That's why Easter is such a big deal. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, it demonstrated victory over death, victory over sin, and victory over Satan. And then God just has one uh, responsibility for us. The beginning point it's very simple. Acts 16, 31, Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. See, God invites us to respond to him by faith, to trust Jesus. And you know, it's, you can put your faith in Jesus. It's about, ex- it's about trusting him. It's about expressing your faith. And prayer is just one way to do that. And uh, it can be a prayer like this. And you can do that here today. You can go home and do this. You can do this anytime with a prayer like this. It's about believing in Jesus. It could be something like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust you right now to pay the penalty for my sin. It could be that simple. You could do that anywhere. 
You can do it now. You can do it on your way out. You can do it when you get home. And the good news is for all of us, the resurrection is a victory over sin and death and Satan. And we can walk in that power of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Easter. Thank you that the tomb was empty, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and we give you praise for that. Thank you that you started the church in the first century, and uh, your people just learned to walk with you one day at a time. They learned to trust you. They learned to pray. They learned about who you were, that you were the sovereign God and that you could be trusted in any circumstance. God, it's my prayer that you will grow our faith so that we can be like the early church in trusting you. Father, I pray for anyone here who uh, has never placed their faith in Christ that the gospel will be very clear to them, that they understand that what Jesus has done for them. For all of us, Lord, help us to tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we might be faithful as your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.